Well, good to see each one this morning. Hopefully you're keeping fairly warm. Um, it is interesting, the changes in our climate, isn't it? You know, uh, it's only a month ago when we were all kind of sweating in here, and now you've, uh, make sure you wore your, your warm underwear. Now, it was just over 200 years ago that two young men, Peter and David, made the long trek from Lancaster County in the United States to the backwoods of Ontario. And in those days, it was at least a four-week journey. They came by oxen and wagon um, up the steep ruts of the Allegheny Mountains. If you've ever taken that trip down to Pennsylvania, just imagine coming up a kind of a country lane up over the hill. And there they came with all their belongings. They came to the Niagara River, and they turned their Conestoga wagons into little boats and floated them across the river. 500 miles, 800 kilometers to the thick bush of Waterloo County. Peter built a log cabin and began to clear some land near what today is the St. Jacob's Farmer's Market. David settled closer to the Conestoga River. Um, and a few of those buildings, including his uh, little Spriga house, which was a refrigeration where the, uh, the stream went through the little uh, building to keep things cool, and it's still there today, just by the Gray Silo Golf Club. That was the beginning of the Martin Settlement in Waterloo and Woolwich Township. Peter and David Martin, they were actually cousins. And from those rather unpretentious beginnings, thousands of people have descended. This is the most common name in our township. And I think it impacts Citizens Church today. So I wanna ask you, how many people here this morning, their last name is Martin? Put up your hand and keep it up there. Now I want you to keep holding your hand up if your mother's name was Martin. How many people, keep your hands up, all the Martins. Now if your mother's name was Martin, I know my wife, she's coming, she'll add to the crowd. If your mother's name was Martin, raise your hand. Okay, how about if your grandmother's name was Martin? So Martin's mother is Martin, grandmother is Martin. Aren't you glad that Peter and David came? I'm glad. You know, if, if we had watched those two pioneers building those little rough log cabins and attempting to farm in between the stumps, could you ever have imagined that out of such unpretentious beginnings, uh, who would ever guess that 200 years later there would be dozens of us here this morning who can relate back to Peter and David Martin? Now, if we had been present 2,000 years ago, that day when Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, as he taught and as he called four very ordinary people to join him on his journey, could we ever have imagined what, that would, have, what would end up happening, the impact that that would have? The beginnings of a mission which would eventually impact the entire world. For those four fishermen were the first of millions of people who would respond to the call of Jesus Christ to follow me. And from the shores of that lake in northern Israel, the message would travel to the ends of the earth, or to use Jesus' picture, from just a tiny mustard seed, a huge tree has grown. Now let's look together this morning, if you have a Bible, at Mark chapter one, beginning at verse 14, what Brett read to us. And if you remember, we've got to this verse 14 because we've covered the 13 verses before. And the first week, we discovered the role of John the Baptist in this whole story of Jesus, how he prepared the way for the Messiah. 
Then last week, we came across the public affirmation of Jesus in his baptism and the private testing of Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. Now, beginning at this verse, the public ministry of Jesus begins. Mark 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So notice two things here. Number one, the time. Secondly, notice the place. The time, after John the Baptist's arrest. It was a time of increasing opposition to both the ministry of John the Baptist and eventually the ministry of Jesus. And in Mark chapter six, we discover, if we're gonna look at that in a few weeks, that John the Baptist was arrested because he had spoken out against the moral corruption of the leader of the land, Herod Antipas, the ruling authority. Herod Antipas was one of the Herodian family. If you remember the Herod at the time of Jesus, the Herod who destroys the children in Bethlehem, this was Herod Antipas' father, Herod the Great. And Herod had a, a number of sons, and this was one of them. But this Herod Antipas gets himself in some moral trouble here because he falls in love with his sister-in-law, who was his brother Philip's wife. Her name was Herodias. And so what he decided to do was get rid of his wife, divorce her, and that's a story for another day. That ended up causing a war. So he divorced his wife, and he marries this lady called Herodias. Not only was Herodias his sister-in-law, that Herod name and her name, she was also his niece. So his niece, his sister-in-law, I mean, you can imagine the family scandal. I, I don't imagine you want to get together the family get-togethers where him and his brother got together, right? Um, Needless to say, this caused outrage in the family and throughout the entire community, and John the Baptist wades into the controversy. And unlike some of the weak uh, comments of today, John the Baptist had a spine, and he stood up and he said, that's wrong, that's sin. Ooh, Herod didn't like that, and I tell you, Herodias liked it even less. And she said to her husband, we need that guy out of the way. So they arrested John the Baptist, and we discover in John 6, they chopped off his head. So this was the time when the ministry began, after John was arrested. That's the backstory. The place, Galilee, um, away from the mounting tension of Jerusalem, a place where common people lived and worked. There were many little villages around the lake. It's actually a very, very beautiful place. It's one of the few really nice freshwater lakes in the entire Middle East. And Sharon and I had the privilege of visiting there. Those are pictures that she took about 10 years ago. You know, growing up, I, you probably the same thing. We, you know, the Sunday night, you'd get tea and coffee at church, and someone would show pictures of their trip to Israel, right? And I never really thought of ever going. I don't know why. You know, it's kind of like, okay, that's fine. And then when I hit 50, I thought, you know, I'm halfway there, probably more, right? I remember my kids, when I said I was middle-aged at 50, they said, you think you're going to live to 100, right? Um, so we thought, we'd like to go. So neither of us are those kind of bus people, you know, getting a bus thing. That really didn't turn me on. So I looked up, internet was still doing its thing 10 years ago, sort of, and I booked a car and I booked some hostels to stay in, and uh, away we went in our car, getting lost and having all kinds of adventures. Our kids thought we'd never come back, um, but we did. And uh, one of the places we really enjoyed was, was Galilee, and it just from a it reminded me of uh, California. It's a gorgeous place, actually, really, really nice. 
The, the, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. It's about 12 by 20 kilometers. You can see over the Golan Heights on the other side. Um, it's interesting, when Luke talks about this piece of water, Luke is well-traveled all over the, the ancient world, and he calls it a lake. That's realistic. Mark, he didn't travel quite so much. He calls it a sea. I'd call it a lake, wouldn't you? And um, where we were staying there, up on the left there, that's the hills of Arabel. We hiked up there because the, um, the Sea of Galilee is down in a depression, part of the great African rift. Um, and right here, this is actually from the, the uh, balcony where we were staying just above Magdala. Mary Magdalene, she came from Magdala. Um, gorgeous place, a place called Bet Braca. If you ever go to Galilee, great, it was a Christian retreat center run by the Anglican Church. Wonderful, wonderful place to stay. And you know, what I found quite moving was in certain places like Jerusalem, things have changed very greatly. Those walls you see of Jerusalem date back 500 years, and there's old ones underneath, I guess. But when we came to Galilee, we realized, you know, it probably didn't look a lot different when Jesus was there. He walked along those shores. It, it's, it was kind of moving, right? It was kind of moving. So the time, John is in prison. The place, Galilee, the story of Jesus occurs in real space and in real time. And Jesus came in space and time with a message. Verse 14, he was proclaiming the gospel of God. And what was that message? What was the gospel or literally the good news? Look at verse 15. Here's what Jesus preached. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the core message of Jesus. It was the message that was preached about Christ, by Christ, that centered on the work and the person of who he was. And this is the same gospel message throughout the entire New Testament. Sometimes people say, oh, there's difference what the apostles preached, what Jesus preached. No, it's all the same. Acts 2.38, I think we have it up there. Peter said to them on the day of Pentecost when they were asking, who are all these people and what is it they believe? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the same message, repentance and forgiveness. Again, Acts 3, verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. It's the same message of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 20, verse 21, when he's, when he's encouraging the elders of the Ephesian church, he says this as to summarize the gospel, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same message all through the New Testament. This is the core of the Christian faith. It's a summary of the message of salvation proclaimed in the entire New Testament. Mark 1 verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, or the marginal reading in your Bible says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the gospel. And yet, now, as it still is today, the message was misunderstood and rejected. The oppressed people of Israel were looking for a deliverer. We've heard that before. They were looking for a conquering Messiah. They were looking for someone to, to come and fix their problems. Uh, they were waiting for that time to be fulfilled that the Old Testament prophets had talked about. When they imagined that this promised Messiah would come and liberate them from Rome, when a political leader would come and establish a new kingdom in Israel. But Jesus' message of the kingdom of God was so much bigger that they couldn't actually imagine it. The kingdom of God was not to be limited anymore to just one nation, 
but it was to reach out to all nations. Revelation 4 verse 5 says it so well. It was for every tribe and language and people and nation. The kingdom of God was to bring the rule of God. I guess, you know, you ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts and minds of people who will willingly submit to his leadership. Did you get that? The kingdom of God is his rule in the hearts and minds of people who willingly and voluntarily submit to his leadership. For, as it says in Revelation verse chapter 19 and verse 16, for he is the king above all kings and he is the Lord above all lords. And then there was the part that even the disciples struggled with, and they struggled with this throughout the gospel, that rather than Messiah coming as a conquering military power, the kingdom of God would actually come through the sacrificial death of the king. Oh, the disciples struggled with that one. They just couldn't get their heads around it. And through his death, he would bring salvation to those who believed in him. And so as we sang this morning, as believers, we still pray for the time when his kingdom fully comes in its completeness and when his will is fully done on earth as it is in heaven. One of the key verses in the whole of Mark's gospel is found in Mark 10, verse 45. It's almost a summary of the entire book. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the summary of the entire book. And in the person of Jesus, the kingdom had come. You know, sometimes when it comes to difficult concepts like this, where truth is hard to put into words, stories help us. And this message that the king has arrived comes across so powerfully in C.S. Lewis's stories of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I like this section coming out of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Listen to the puzzled questions of the Pevensey children when they hear about the king, Aslan. Who is Aslan, said Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know he's the king? He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here, you understand, never in my time or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back, and he is at Narnia at this moment. Is he a man, said Lucy. Aslan a man, Mr. Beaver sternly said. Certainly not, I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. No, that you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Oh, safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In Jesus, the king has come near. But look again at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. What was the message that Jesus proclaimed? Repent and believe in the gospel. The message was very short and to the point. You didn't fall asleep during a Jesus message. It was all done before you even heard it, right? But that message was not only simple, it was complex and difficult. Repent and believe the gospel. You know, repent has unfortunately become a cartoonish kind of word. You know, one of those cartoons with this oddballish, eccentric, with a big beard, and he's holding a sign that says, repent, the end is near. But repent is a down-to-earth word. It means change your mind. 
It means turn around. It means you're on a dead-end course, take another direction. It means there's a problem that I need to recognize. So faith in Christ, we discover, has two parts. It means turning away from one direction, that's repent. It means turning towards a new direction, believe in the gospel. Turning away from my self-efforts, even my self-righteousness, acknowledging my brokenness before God, and turning towards Christ in his cross and receiving forgiveness and a new life. So the gospel can be summarized in two simple essential parts. Number one, it's turning from, that's repentance. It's turning to, that's faith in Christ. Let me just stop for a moment and make a comment. This concept of turning from self, self-will, self-righteousness, and changing your mind about your real condition is one of the major stumbling blocks in people accepting Christianity. It was then, and it still is today. Today, this is the age of, I'm okay, you're okay. And even more, ours is the age of blaming everyone else for the predicament we find ourselves in. This message of admitting our shortfall, taking ownership of our failure, it is a foreign concept in an age of victimization. But the difficult message of Christ is this, I am not okay. The bright diamond of the gospel stands out against the black velvet of our human condition. The truth is this, it is only when we deeply feel our need that we come to the Savior. It is only when we feel our guilt, our brokenness, our alienation from self and others and God that we see our need for the Savior, turning from our despair and turning to Christ's grace. This is how each and every one of us becomes part of the kingdom of God, or to put it in plain language, this is how we become a Christian. It's a voluntary, purposeful act of the will. In the New Testament, there are various pictures which are used to describe this transaction, how we become part of the family of God. There's the picture of birth, of new life, of a new birth, or an overused term, being born again. There's also the picture of becoming part of a new community, becoming citizens of God's kingdom. And yeah, that's right. That's why we're called Citizens Church. Believing in God, believing in the gospel, turning from self, and turning to Christ, this is the revolutionary message of Christ. This is the gospel. Mark 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, let's come to the next section, verse 16. Let's continue. The story of the first four disciples who actually believed as best they could this message, who believed the gospel and then took the next step which was to follow Jesus in his mission. Read with me, Mark chapter one, beginning at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that is Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. This marks the beginning of Jesus' official ministry, his mission to the world. 
And it marks the beginning of Jesus' calling of his disciples. These were the first four of 12 he would call, the ones who would carry his mission into the world after he had returned to his father. And these first disciples were his key men, Peter, who was the leader of the disciples, as we discover later on, James and John, who made up the inner circle. And when we deal with the inner circle of disciples, it's Peter and James and John. In ancient times, individuals would come up to a rabbi and ask, could, could I be your disciple? But here's something unique happens. Jesus comes to them and says, you come and follow me. I want you to be my disciples. These were the ones that he picked to take his message to the world. Now, as I read this passage, a few things bubble to the surface. The first is this. I'm struck by how, how ordinary these people were. Andrew, Simon, James, and John. They were just fishermen. They weren't wealthy landowners. They weren't intellectual giants. They weren't political leaders. They weren't scribes, Pharisees, or theologians. They were ordinary people. They were ordinary people who changed the world. Ordinary people who followed Jesus. And you know, that still describes the disciples of Christ. I, I hope you're not offended when I tell you this morning that, that we're mostly just ordinary people here at Citizens Church. We're, we're not intellectual giants and you know, billionaires and whatever else, we're ordinary people. Here's what I, I want you to understand, that ordinary people who are obedient to Jesus can do extraordinary things. Did you get that? Ordinary people who are obedient to Jesus can do extraordinary things. He revels to use ordinary people, even despised people, people who don't feel up to the job, he longs to show his strength through our weakness. Isn't that cool? Isn't that encouraging? The effective work of obedient, ordinary people. Ordinary people who are obedient to Jesus can do extraordinary things. But here's the second thing I'm struck with when I read this story. I'm struck by how Jesus calls active people, not just ordinary people, but active people. When he found Simon and Andrew, what were they doing? They were busy fishing. They were down at that Sea of Galilee throwing their nets out, trying to catch something. They were productive and busy in their work. I think we got some pictures there. That's um, on the left there is just along from Capernaum, which was the town they lived in, and the seashore is still there. You can kind of imagine some boats there. Um, and you, you see Jesus called these active people. You, you see, he did not call tourists sitting on rocks. But um, nevertheless, there I am. And then when he goes a little further along, he finds James and John, and they were actively repairing their nets. So some were fishing, some were fixing, all were productive. And, and this week I, I read, when I'm trying to get some thoughts together in a passage, I, I bounce it off Sharon, and she returns the favor when she's bouncing off some of her lessons to me. And we read the passage together, and uh, Sharon's comment was, I wonder what Mr. Zebedee thought about it all when they walked off. You know, that's a good question. But I'll tell you, whatever he thought, I know he thought this for sure. He says, I'll miss those guys. They know how to get some work done, right? Now he's left with a bunch of hired men. And when Jesus' call comes to us today, he calls active, engaged people, not tourists on rocks. <laughs> he calls people who are active where they are so they can be active where he calls them to go. But here's a third thing I notice. This call to follow Jesus in his mission requires sacrifice. 
for Simon and Andrew, they had to leave the security of their business behind. And that's a tough thing to do. I'm somewhere in the next year or two, I retire. And I don't know, I guess, I guess I'm alone here, aren't I? Yes. Um, it's kind of scary thinking of retirement, Graham. You know, it, it <laughs> you know, and now, now with all this, you know, possible inflation, I'm thinking, you know, will my $20,000 go very far? You know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, and they left their security behind. Okay, for James and John, they left their family and community behind. Here's the point, guys. There is little of value that occurs in any aspect of our life. And particularly, there's little of value that occurs in the life of faith that does not require sacrifice. Did you get that? There is very little of value in the Christian life that does not come through sacrifice. Service that costs nothing usually is service of very little value. But you know, actually the biggest issue that strikes me as I read through this story is the apparent suddenness with which this life-changing decision is made. Look at verse 17. You know, Jesus just kind of walks along. These guys are fishing. This is how it sounds anyhow. And he comes along and he says, follow me. And immediately, off they go and they follow him. Verse 20, the story of James and John. And immediately, Mark loves that word, immediately he called them and they left. Talk about blink. Woo, that happened fast. Or did it? Is there more to the story? And the answer is yes, there is. I want you to turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 45. And here we discover there's a backstory on Andrew and Simon and possibly John that occurred possibly months previous. In John's Gospel, we're reading about what's occurring when John the Baptist is still alive, when he's not in prison. And in John's Gospel, we discover that before these men were disciples of Jesus, they were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And they'd been looking for spiritual reality for quite an extended period of time. Let's read together, John chapter one, beginning at verse 35. The next day, John, that is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and he said, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teachers, where are you staying or where are you hanging out so we can hang out with you? And he said to them, come and you'll see. So they came to where he was staying and they stayed with him that day and asked him questions and found out all about him for it was about the 10th hour, four in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew. Okay, we've met him, haven't we? Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said, we have found the Messiah, which means the Savior, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, or Peter, which means a rock. He called him Rocky. <laughs> so we discover in this passage that Andrew and one other individual who was possibly John the fisherman, the chap who wrote the book, were disciples of John the Baptist before they were disciples of Jesus. And one day when they were with John the Baptist, John the Baptist pointed at one that was coming and he said, look, there's Jesus. He's the real deal, the Lamb of God. And so they want to find out about him. They investigate him. And as Andrew listens to Jesus, he begins to grasp that, yes, this is the one we're looking for. And he begins to accept the truth about Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from then on, 
Andrew is no longer a disciple of John the Baptist. He begins to follow Christ and his faith journey. And one of the first things he does in his enthusiasm is he goes to find his best friend, his business partner, his brother, Simon, and he brings him to Jesus. And Jesus gives him a new name. He calls him Peter. By the way, that is the wonder of having people coming to faith in Christ. In their initial enthusiasm, and studies have showed this numerous times, the people who bring the most others to Christ are people who have recently been converted to Christ themselves. And so in this situation, that's exactly what happens. Andrew is now enthused about Jesus. He runs to tell the person he loves the most, his brother, which is great, and he brings him to Christ. By the way, that is why actively evangelizing churches grow and this is also why churches that do not bring people to Christ eventually die out. So when Andrew and Simon, James and John, learn, leave their fishing careers to follow Christ, it was immediate. It wasn't a momentary decision, but it was not a thoughtless decision. It was a decision that had been taken with months of previous background uh, goings on, prepar preparation, right? Someone has said that the Christian life can be described as a process and a crisis. There's a whole process of coming to Christ and a crisis, and then there's a process after as we grow in our faith. There's a process as the Holy Spirit works in our heart, but one day it comes to a crisis when we make that decision that we're going for it, and after that, there follows a process. Actually, I've got a really interesting uh, chart up here. James Engel taught for many years at uh, Wheaton College, and he'd observed this, and he kind of put it down in chart form, which I find quite fascinating. And so down at the bottom, see if we can do this quite quickly. Oh, we've got time. Um, starting at number one, you have people, there's no awareness of God. You could even be more than that. And then up to the top, where people are really growing in their faith. So he defines it as fringe, family, or friend and family. So when I think of the story we just read of Andrew, he already was a Jewish believer. So one, two, and three don't really count. So he comes in there at about level four. And he has this interest in Jesus. And then he goes and he spends time with them. And he begins to understand who he is. And when we come to the story in Mark chapter one, he's up there at level 10. Right? So he's already thought about all this. He's kind of thought it through. And when Jesus finally comes to him and says, come follow me, he says, I'm, I'm in it. Right? I'm going. Um, do you know, the other thing about a chart like that is I find myself there. I think we can all look at that and say, where are we on that chart? Are we still at that stage where we're, I mean, the fact you're here this morning means you're somewhere up there at least investigating the faith. Or you've come to faith in Christ, level 10, or you're growing in your Christian faith. I, I think it's, it's kind of interesting. You sort of see that. And flip up the other chart. There's a, another one here that's kind of interesting, which is the same, um, same guy, except it's done in a different way because what it's pointing out here is this reality of the fact that there's a process and a crisis is, is also critical as we communicate the gospel. So if you look on the far right there on man's response, you know, minus eight is an awareness but no knowledge of the gospel. And some have said in our society today, there's a lot of people up at minus, minus nine and minus 10, which is they don't believe in God at all or they, they have a resistance, right? So when we have people who are up at that level of five, six, seven, eight, we're dealing with some apologetics, you know, is there good evidence for the faith? Is Jesus who he said he was? Um, is, did everything just come by coincidence or is there an intelligent design behind it? 
And so it's a different kind of communication. Whereas when we come down to that level where someone's just ready to accept Jesus, then there's a little bit more persuasion. You know, it's time to make that decision. It's also been pointed out that a previous generation where I grew up, there were a lot of people who were in that minus two, minus three. So when Billy Graham came and said, come to Christ, there were hundreds of people in the audience who were right ready to go. Today's society, there's a whole lot more people up there at minus seven and minus eight, and they've got a long way to go before they accept Christ. So it, it tells something about how we communicate the faith, how we apologetics, and then after people come to faith in Christ, how we follow them up and how we encourage them. Um, over the far side kind of brings out a little bit of the big picture of how God works in it all, how he reveals himself through creation, how his spirit brings conviction, and eventually to a place of accepting Christ, new life in Christ, and then growing sanctification in our faith. I, um, if you want copies of that, just give me your email and I'll send it to you. I thought it was, it was quite interesting. Let me close with one final verse. Mark 1, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. I, I like that TV program that said, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it, right? And accept it they did, from fishermen to fishers of men. A mission to draw others to Christ. Their background and skills were transferred to a new task, to bring people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Using all they had learned as fishermen, think about it, they had learned patience as fishermen, learning not to give up, to get up there and put the nets out and you pull them in, there's nothing in them, do it again, do it again. They had learned wisdom. They learned to know where the fish were, where you caught them, what kind of bait you used, what kind of nets you used. They had courage. They had learned to be fishermen even in the storm. And the patience and wisdom and courage that they learned as fishermen helped them to become fishers of men. Is this not our mission as disciples of Christ in 2021? to continue the task that Christians have faithfully carried out for 2,000 years, to throw out the net of the gospel and with patience and wisdom to draw people to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Is this not our ultimate mission at Citizens Church? I just want to remind you of our vision statement again. And whoever wrote it up, thank you. It's wonderful. We exist to see people come to know and be changed by Jesus. We do this through simple gospel-centered worship, community, and by making disciples who pursue mission in Elmira. Through teaching of the word and sharing community to continue to bring new believers into the family of God, Jesus said, follow me. I will make you to become fishers of men. This is gospel mission. Isn't it good? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that when we recognize our need, there is forgiveness, there is renewal, there is salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And as we have received this good news, help us to share it with others, the transforming message of the gospel. May you empower us as individuals and as a church to be faithful to this gospel mission in our community through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.